All right. Well, uh, we have been going through our New Life series, uh, and I've told you before, Colossians, I love the book of Colossians. I think there's so many good truths in that. And as we go through the book of Colossians, we're looking at the new life that we have in Christ. This, uh, I think too often we take for granted uh, this idea that there is new life found in Jesus. That when we come to be uh, a Christian, when Jesus becomes our Lord, it says that we are born again. And I find it very rare to find somebody that really can explain all that that entails. What does it mean that we are born again? What is, what is this new life? What are the implications of new life? How does it change? I think so often we become a believer, especially if you're somebody who maybe comes, becomes a believer later in life, and you think that this new life is all about behavior modification. And that's the sum total of what we make it sometimes, is that we say, okay, well, I'm a believer, so now I've got to stop all my bad habits. I'm the same person I just have to cut out all the bad habits and go to church. And that's what new life is all about. And we miss out on so much because we fail to see all that Jesus wants for us when he calls us to this new life, when he uh, does this work of regeneration, when he does this work of uh, now uh, this process of sanctification. What does this mean? What should it mean for us? And what effect should it have on our lives? It is never-ending. It never stops. And we, you have begun this new journey with Jesus. I, I think I, I talked about this in the past, how I think we do a disservice to people when we create this idea that Christianity is about praying a prayer and that that is the goal. The goal of Christianity is to get people saved. Man, that's the beginning. That's the first, that's, that's getting somebody in the boat. That's, that's not the goal, that's just the beginning now of this journey you're going to go on with Jesus for the rest of your lives. And it's going to be beautiful, and it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be strange, and it's going to be scary. And we were talking about that this morning in our Sunday school class, how often Jesus is going to call us to places where we step out on faith, and we step into a place where if Jesus doesn't show up, we're in trouble. And that's the best place to be. The best place to be is in the middle of God's will, where, where He wants us. You're much safer there than creating your own little safety bubble, but being outside of the will of God. That is not safe. Um, and some of you have experienced that in your life. You thought you had it under control. You kind of told God no because you wanted to do your own thing and keep everything safe. And you found out, man, safe is not safe when it's not where Jesus wants me to be. And so uh, as we go through the book of Colossians, we're looking at new life, what it means, the implications it has on our life, uh, and what is, what is Paul talking about? Uh, we, we, uh, the first week, we talked a lot about um, the history behind the uh, Colossian church, what was happening happened in, Col- in Colossae, the city, uh, the false teachings. It's a new church that Paul's writing to. Um, these are new, a lot of new believers, people that Paul doesn't personally know. He's never been to the church once it, once it was established as a group. He's met some of the individuals. He knows the person who started the church, kind of a co-worker of Paul's. But in large part, Paul is not familiar with this church as, as a body yet. Um, but he's writing to them. He's heard some really good things about them. But a lot of false teaching has started to creep in. And Colossians deals with uh, a lot of uh, what I would say is, has kind of been one of my pet peeves or uh, pet uh, frustrations was since coming into the church a little bit later in life. And 
honestly, having a little bit of a rebellious spirit as a kid, uh, uh, I struggled with the legalism of church. Uh, and we'll get into that a lot today because the second half of chapter two, if you've been reading it, which I hope you do, anytime we do a series like this, I strongly encourage you, read the chapter that we're going to discuss every day uh, the week prior. And then when we get together on Sundays and we talk about it, it's going to have so much more value. It's going to be so much richer, especially if you're not just reading it, but you're reading it, meditating on it, and asking God to speak to you from His Word. Then, honestly, what I do up here on Sunday mornings will just kind of be you know, icing on, on the cake of, that God has built all week. But if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them up to Colossians chapter 2. You can also follow along on the screen, um, but I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. So uh, if you want to follow along the same translation, that's what I like to uh, teach from. So uh, starting in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, uh, we're continuing on from last week. So if you missed last week, go back and watch it. Uh, but starting in verse 16, it says, So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or sabbaths and i think i just want to pause for a moment for you to appreciate this because in our culture um other than you know there are certain people who you know rail against uh, others like uh i know i know people who live in communities uh, where uh, the whole vegan thing has gone crazy and like they look at you weird if you still eat like real meat. Um, but around here, it's the exact opposite of that. It's like, wait, you don't eat, you don't eat meat? Like any meat or like just store-bought meat? Uh, but in this time and in this culture, this was just a way of life. I mean, the, the Jewish culture especially, it was all about what you did or didn't touch, all about what you did or didn't eat, all about your uh, cleanliness uh, or, or your purity. It was all about what you touched, what you ate, what you consumed. All of that had everything to do with your standing in the Jewish culture and in that, in that uh, entire community was, are you clean or are you unclean? And that had everything to do with what you were touching, what you were eating, uh, where you were found. If you were found to be somewhere you shouldn't be, oh my goodness, they, you know, the community would look down on you and, and would view you a certain way. And so what Paul is saying here is really a big deal. I mean, this is earth-shattering for some of those people to get out of that mindset of anything that you touch, you have to really think through. Is this clean? Is it unclean? Is, am I allowed to touch this? Am I not allowed to touch this? If you read your scriptures and you, uh, you read about the vision that Peter is given, where God lets down this sheet and all this food is there, and Peter's like, oh no. Even though God's the one telling him to eat it, he's like, I don't think so, man. I've never done this. I've never touched that my whole life. His entire structure in his mind of what holiness was, was built around what he touched what he ate, what he ate, what he drank. It was all based on clean and unclean. And then I, like I said, I come into the church a little bit later in life, and one of the things that uh, would get me is, and I've heard some of you even tell me these stories of how uh, you would drive home from church on a Sunday and how you just, like, you couldn't help it. You would just judge the people that you saw. Like, if you saw someone cutting their grass, like, if I, I drove home and saw Doug here out in the yard, like, working out in his yard, to be like, oh, man, he's not a very good Christian. He's working on Sunday. I can't believe he would do that. Like, we still did it 2,000 years later. We're still judging people by these made-up rules and regulations. Uh, we have a lot of man-made rules. We do that. 
Uh, whether it's made up Sabbath rules, like when you can work, when you can't work, what you have to do on a Sabbath. Well, I always thought it was funny because we had this like weird conception and, and, and you know, I found out early on, like as a 14-year-old arrogant little Christian, that you can't ask certain questions to certain people because they get very upset about it, um, especially when you poke holes in things that you aren't supposed to poke holes in. Because I thought, I remember asking someone like, okay, so it's wrong to work on Sundays, but isn't that what the pastor's doing? Is that work? It seems like work. It seems like there's a lot of effort being put into Sundays, so it kind of seems like he's working. Don't ask that question. Uh, because that's exactly what was the case was. You, you, you all come in on a Sunday morning and you listen to a guy who's working. You know, that's part of my job is to preach. Uh, you probably wouldn't be happy with me if I said, eh, you know what, I'm not going to preach on Sundays anymore. It's a lot of, too much work. Sabbath day, I must rest. Uh, that'd be weird. Uh, and church wouldn't go on very long like that. I certainly wouldn't be employed for very long. Um, so whether it's made up rules of the Sabbath or we make rules about whether you can, can or can't wear a hat in church, I, I know that one's still around, or dancing, or the hundred other things that, we, that the church made rules up for. We made rules for everything. You know, I, I remember I was always a hat wearer as a kid, uh, and I'd come into the church and, and we'd be told, don't you know you're not supposed to wear a hat in church? And if you know my personality, you know that I just very quietly and meekly took my hat off and sat down, right? Uh, of course I didn't. Of course I wanted them to prove to me where it said that in the Bible, and um, it doesn't. Uh, there were just so many made-up rules. And trying to learn that culture, and, and I think uh, I always thought it was, was weird, and then I don't think it really said, and I think one of the greatest analogies for me was when Jackie and I, we had moved to Morgantown, West Virginia, uh, and if, it was, what's kind of unique about Morgantown, West Virginia, is that they don't have like a professional sports team there. West Virginia doesn't have an NFL team. They don't have a hockey team. They don't have a baseball team. They have WVU football. Like that's what they have in basketball. I know that basketball is pretty big down there. Uh, but people would drive four or five hours to go to the WVU games. And I thought that was very fascinating. And so Jack and I were gifted some tickets to go to the game. Uh, and we went to the, our first WVU football game. And I don't know, have you ever been to like, are any of you like big sports people? Like you really get into the sports scene. You go, like to go to games and stuff. Uh, I didn't know this because I don't like watching sports. But there's like a whole thing that you do during a football game. Like first down, you got to stand up. You say a certain chant. You do a certain thing. Like third down, you do the same thing. You got this whole chant. You got to do this thing. And then when they score a touchdown, same thing. You get up, you dance, you do this weird thing. You, you got to say certain things or else you look weird because you're all, and that's Jackie and I. We're sitting there like, I don't know what to do. And I'm standing up. And I'm like, what are we supposed to do here? What are we yelling? And there was this whole culture that I knew nothing about. Now, I think we can all agree when you go to a football game, those are not required requirements. But you still feel awkward if you don't know what you're supposed to do. Uh, and we don't acknowledge that that's very true for people coming into a church. They don't understand the culture. They don't understand, am I supposed to stand up now? Am I supposed to sit down? Like half the people are standing up during the song. Does that mean I'm supposed to stand up or sit down? Uh, and we don't acknowledge that there are just accepted rules and things that we do that are just uncomfortable or just not common for people. Uh, I think, and, and that's totally fine. That's okay. That every culture is going to have that. What I think is the problem is when we say it is wrong for you not to follow our rules, not to follow our unspoken 
customs and things like that. And we have done that in the church. Uh, one of the, like I said, one of the ones for me was like wearing a hat in church. I always thought, so strange. Like, I get that there was like, back in the day, there was this thing where you didn't wear a hat inside or at a table, but how does that, how does God feel about that? It seems like it's just like a, a, a thing for certain people that doesn't, you know, make it into the church. And um, I've actually had people tell me, don't you know, I've, I, one person in particular I remember said, don't you know the Bible says you're not supposed to wear a hat in church? Well, I've read it a few times and I've never seen that. Uh, but I think we just need to acknowledge there are some things that we do that are accepted in our culture that are just what we prefer. They're what we want to see. They're what we hope to see. But the scripture is very clear. Don't let anyone condemn you. Don't ever feel that. So here's, here's your, my encouragement to you. As you engage with this church family, if we do something that is not uh, that you, uh, something you want to do like that, if we say, oh, you know what, in this church, we all wear button-up shirts to church, whatever, whatever rule we want to make up, don't ever feel condemned by not following the rules that people make up. Now, if it's God's word, then absolutely you should feel uh, the need to follow God's word. But don't let anyone condemn you for not following their rules. One of the big, biggest missteps, in, in my opinion, uh, that I encountered with the church uh, coming into it was that they used condemnation as a tool to manage people's behavior. The way that, you know, certain that, you know, that one lady would look at you, man, she lets you know that you weren't doing the right thing. That's condemnation. That has no room in the church. Dirty looks, huffing, that just attitude that people would have if, you know, that kid came in in shorts and a t-shirt with his hat on backwards and sat in the front row. Praise the Lord! He's in church. He's hearing the Word of God, and he's with God's people. Who cares if he's not dressed the way you would dress? You're not him. That's okay. And yet we used condemnation as a tool to manage behavior. Well, you don't, you know, you don't do that there because of, oh man, they will come down on you. That is so wrong of us as a community of faith people that we would use something like condemnation to control someone's behavior, to try to steer someone to, to follow our cultural do's and don'ts. It is not a tool of God. The Bible is very clear. Do not let anyone condemn you. Paul is saying here to this church, for what you eat or what you drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths, don't let anyone ever condemn you for not following these things because they no longer have a place. Romans 8.1, he covers this again. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Is that, does that mean that if you wear your hat on stage, that there's still no condemnation? There is not. You might not like it. It might really bother you because of how you grew up and what you were told about hats and what certain things that you're supposed to wear and not supposed to wear. But by no means does that give us the right to condemn someone. And I've seen it. I've seen someone step off the stage or something and 
you know, that, that person takes every opportunity. They catch them as soon as you, you know you weren't supposed to do that. You know you're not supposed to wear that. And who are we to condemn? And on the flip side of this, I want you to hear, I'm not condemning you for having done that. I don't want you to feel condemnation if you were guilty of that because let's be honest, we've all done it. We've all created our own rules of what people should or shouldn't do. I've created my rule of how you're wrong for having done that. So it's just as wrong for me to turn around and then condemn someone for having done it. We shouldn't condemn anything, but instead out of love should say, hey, don't you think there's a better way to deal with that? Maybe there was a, a kinder way to address that. Hey, that person that is doing that thing that you don't like, Maybe try to grab a meal with them. Hear their story. Get to know them a little bit more. Understand their walk with Jesus. And I promise you, it'll change the way you view them. You might think they're just this messed up little hooligan, or you might think that they're this outdated person who just is bitter and angry about everything. And then you spend some time with them, and you get to know them, and you get to learn, and they're a beautiful person. They love Jesus. They just have their things, and we all do. We all have our things. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. What a beautiful thing. That man, we're going to mess it up. And we're going to mess it up bad sometimes. And we're going to get it wrong. And we're going to do the wrong thing. We're going to say the wrong thing. And there's still no condemnation. Because God's grace covers it. I love that Zach was talking about God's grace this morning. And, and you know, name, you know, put some adjectives out there for God's grace. Man, you can't, you can't come up with enough adjectives to describe that grace because it just covers us all the time. And God knows just how much we're going to mess up, and He knows how we're going to get it wrong. He knows how we're going to be a little bit too free at times and a little bit too condemning at times, and we're going to be too legalistic and not enough. And His grace still covers it. He's still good, and He's still in control. But have you ever felt guilty or condemned because you didn't follow the accepted rules of a group? I can tell you, as Jackie and I sat at that WVU football game, we felt a little judged because it was pretty clear like the whole group around us knew what the motions were and they knew what everything was and we did not. And half the time we didn't stand up. We didn't even stand up because we're like, I don't even know what they're doing right now. I can't hear them. Half of them are boozed up so much I can't understand what they're saying anyhow, so I don't know what they're yelling. So I don't know what's going on right now. But we wanted to fit in. We wanted to like be excited with everybody even though I don't care about football. But it was kind of impossible. But, but you know, people would look at us like, why aren't they standing up? Are, there, are you guys for the other team? Because we didn't have WVU gear on because we just got to town. So I knew people thought, like, are they rooting for the other team? They're not even standing up. They're not cheering on third down. And we've, it's third down and two to go. Come on. And we didn't know what to do. So I just want to encourage you, if you've, if you've ever felt condemned because you didn't follow the accepted rules of our family, release that. Just let it go. There is no condemnation for you. And can we also just take a moment to personally repent for the times that we've condemned others for not following our rules that we've created? Because my guess is we've probably all done it. Someone in church has done something that you didn't like that's not necessarily against the Word of God. It's just against your whether it's generational preferences or culture preferences, they wore something that you didn't like, they dressed, you know, they dressed a certain way, they spoke in a certain way, they didn't say hi to you the right way, they didn't look you in the eyes when they shook your hand, whatever it is, can we just take a moment to release that as well? To not feel condemnation, 
but to acknowledge, you know what? That's not from God, and I release that. And ask God to increase our capacity for grace because there is power in grace. When you felt the grace of God, when you felt that incredible, beautiful, marvelous, wonderful, whatever words you want to use, effective, I like mine, uh, uh, whatever that word, adjective you want to use, when you felt that for the first time as a believer, did it make you want to run off and do all the sins that you can get away with? Man, it drove you to your knees and you were just in awe of it. And you were so grateful that a, such a loving God would be gracious to you, would extend His grace because you knew how messed up you were. And yet He still loved you and He still offered that grace. And yet as believers sometimes... We think, oh, you can't extend grace in that situation or they're just going to try to get away with it again and again and again and again and again. Man, praise God that he didn't treat us that way. Praise God that he didn't withhold his grace from us because he thought we'd just run off and sin all the time. But he said, you know what? This grace is going to wreck them. The love that they will have for me because I extend this beautiful, wonderful grace on them and they acknowledge that they don't deserve it. Man, what the effect that will have. So why is it important not to buy into the hype behind our made-up rules? Well, Paul covers that in the next verse. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. As well-intentioned as some of these rules might be, and one of the things I've learned in life is if there's a rule, there's probably a reason. There was some knucklehead that came around at some point and did something <laughs> that they had to make that rule for. Somebody did something, you know, and, and so the rule, generally the rules exist for a reason. And most of the time I would hope the rules are well-intentioned. They're just a shadow. They're not the real thing. They can't create the real thing. They're a dark and useless version of reality. They're not going to create anything. They, they might help with some behavior modification. But as we'll talk about a little bit later, as Paul covers a little bit later, they can't create holiness. Rules don't create good people. And whether that's in the church or in our community, in our culture, we see that. It doesn't matter how many rules you make up, it's not going to stop evil things from happening. Verse 18. Don't let anyone condemn you. Here we go again, Paul. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud. So what does pious self-denial look like? Seems like kind of a big phrase, a big terminology. Well, I've heard this, and to me this is pious self-denial. I have never had a sip of alcohol in my entire life. Good for you. I've never walked on the moon. Does that make me holier? Nope. The two aren't connected. Neither is the first statement. They're just not connected. Pious self-denial is denying ourselves something and thinking that it makes us virtuous. And we do it all the time in the church. We deny ourselves something that the Word of God doesn't say we shouldn't do, and then we pat ourselves on the back and say, man, I am holy. I've never went to a movie theater. 
I've never danced. I've never been in a bar. And we pat ourselves on the back because we feel, I can't reach my back, so, uh, or else I would. Um, we pat ourselves on the back because we think that we've achieved some, some level of righteousness or holiness because we've deprived ourselves of something that has no connection to holiness. That's pious self-denial. And that might grate on some of you, um, some of those things to say, well, that can lead to absolutely those things. That anything, it doesn't matter what. Burgers can lead to sin. I'm still going to have burgers, and you probably will too. Gluttony is still a sin, though. We don't just stop doing everything. That's what pious self-denial, and that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. That just denying ourselves something and thinking that it creates virtue in ourselves is wrong. We should follow God, stay away from the things that we feel that God has identified for us because each of us is going to have different things. The, the Bible also is very clear. It says if we think that something is sin for us to do it, then for us to do it, it is sin. That's a pretty powerful verse in there doesn't mean, well, well, I see so-and-so doing it, so maybe it's not sin. Maybe I'm just going to keep doing that thing, even though we are pretty clear that God has put his finger on that in our life and said, no, no, no. For you, no. You can't do that. Then we can't. We stay away from it. Just because somebody else has the freedom to do that doesn't mean that we do. And on the flip side of that as well, just because God has told us we can't do it doesn't mean that we can look at everybody else and say, oh, well, you bunch of sinners, you're doing that thing that God specifically told me not to. That's not how it works. If God tells us not to do something, then that's for us. Now, there's obviously some things in Scripture that are universal, but there's also some things just for us, some certain things that we can't do because we know we're not supposed to. Like for me, eating vegetables. I'm not supposed to do it. Not allowed to. God said so. Uh, He really didn't. I'm just kidding. Uh, But you might be there with a certain food, a certain drink, a, a certain activity where God has made it clear, for you, I'm saying no more. And it's not legalistic for you to follow that. That's, that's good and right if you feel like God has put his finger on something. But just don't portray that to everybody else. That everybody else has to stop doing that one thing because it would lead you to sin does not mean it leads everybody to sin. Paul then in that verse also refutes specific false teachings that are taking place in that uh, Colossian church which have occurred because some people claim that they have had visions about it And to me, this plays out with, I don't know if you've ever heard someone say, well, I feel like God is telling me this, or God said to do that. And it's like, well, all right, well, tell him to give me a ring and let me know about that, because that doesn't seem to line up with what Scripture says. Uh, When I was in college, I was a part of uh, a drama worship team, and we would go around to schools, and I can't tell you how many uh, grandmas told me that God told me I was supposed to marry their daughter. Um, And I learned very early on, just because someone says God said it doesn't mean God said it. Uh, And I told them, then he should let me know as well. But just because someone says, I had a vision, or God said this, we should always take everything to Scripture. It has to line up with the Word of God. If someone claims to have a vision, or claims to have a word from God, and it doesn't line up with Scripture, it wasn't from God. Period. God hasn't changed His Word. He's not moving on. It's one of the reasons why, if you know anything about the Mormon faith, uh, their added book from a vision of an angel, it's like, man, didn't you read the first book? 
that said very clearly there not to follow people that said they have visions from angels that don't line up with Scripture. So it feels like we could have nipped that in the bud a long time ago. And Paul is very clear with this early church. This stuff is infiltrating the church. It's coming in because people are saying, oh, I had this great vision and God told me this or this vision, this angel showed up and gave me this and it's for you and it doesn't line up at all with Scripture. Uh, And many times they use that to to pass along their preferences or their ideologies and they they wanted this legalistic idea passed and so it's just easier to say, well, an angel told me to, to tell you this. We should take everything to the Word of God. That should be something we are all gifted and skilled in is taking anything that people say to the Word of God and testing it, knowing how to test it based on the Word of God. Verse 19 says, And they were not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for He holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. Paul is speaking to the unity that should exist in the body of Christ. When we're all being held together and nourished by Christ, there is a unity and a togetherness we share. We witnessed this a little bit in uh, 9-11 when our country went through this great tragedy. What did it do? It bound us together. There was a unity and a togetherness. I remember, I was a senior in high school when it happened, and I remember thinking like, man, in in the coming weeks after, like, this is the country I wish we lived in. Look at the unity that existed. Look at the togetherness that we had there for such a brief time, but it was there. And sometimes God uses that, a similar set of circumstances to bind churches together. They experience a great tragedy in a church and they come together so well for a season. And it's like, man, that's how we're supposed to exist all the time. We're supposed to overlook the the small stuff. We're supposed to give grace because when the tragedies happen and you get together and you're okay that so-and-so didn't look you in the eyes and shake your hand in the foyer, you're not thinking that they're mad at you or you're not offended by that because you're all coming together for for a common purpose. There's a greater reason, and the emotions might be high, and, and so you're willing to give grace to someone because they, you know and can recognize, man, emotions are high right now, and, and we're all in this place, and oh, it's such a beautiful thing. And if we could just operate that way, always as a church family, giving grace, loving each other, encouraging one another, really showing true affection for each other, that's what Paul's getting at here. This unity, man, when Christ is the one that is nourishing us, when we're each uh, throughout the week engaged in the Word of God and, and in, in God's Word and worshiping Him and, and, and engaged in being nourished by Him, then when we get together, we'll recognize, man, God was speaking the same thing to you all week that He was speaking to me all week. And there's this congruency that we have as a family. And man, we serve the same God and it's so cool and it's so amazing and it's wonderful. That's what God wants for us. We are also always to grow as God nourishes us, not just exist. There's this existence mentality that I I, I think poisons the believer to think like the, the goal is to just get through another day and not mess it up too bad. And that's that existence mentality that God doesn't want for us. He gave us new life for a reason, and it's to flourish, it's to grow, it's to be this beautiful thing. Uh, I know there's especially one person in our church who absolutely loves hydrangea bushes. Uh, and I, I always thought that they were weird because they, they bloom for like 10 seconds in the spring and then they're green the rest of the year. They're just green. And I always thought, 
would be cool if they just bloomed all year long. Or there are certain plants, like uh, I'm not a gardener, you probably know that, but there are certain flowers and things that seem like they bloom for like three days in the summer, but the rest of the time they just exist. And I'm like, man, wouldn't it be better if like they were in bloom all the time? Like I like flowers like that. I'm the you know, the guy who if it's gonna look good, just it should look good all the time. Except for in the winter, it's okay if it dies, you know, during the winter or whatever. But uh should just look nice the whole time. And that's in my opinion, what God wants for us as believers is not just to bloom for like three seconds throughout the year for three days we're this like on fire passionate believer but then the rest of the year we're just kind of blah we just exist we're just waiting for the right circumstances to bloom again god wants us to flourish to grow existence is not his hope for us that's not the ultimate goal he wants us to grow each and every day in his word and in relationship with him and he wants us to flourish and be this beautiful creation that he's created us to be we already are that And he wants us to live in that. So one of my questions for you is, how are you being nourished by God throughout your week? And Sunday's not enough. I promise you, if you don't eat another meal until next Sunday, you're going to get a little hungry. And spiritually, if that's where you're at, the next meal you go for is next Sunday, you should be spiritually starving And if you've gotten accustomed to that, that's a problem. I know some of you probably have gotten into that uh, the habit of eating like one meal a day. It's really not good for you. But some people just they've gotten there. They've they've gotten used to that style where they just eat one meal a day, and they legitimately you don't really get all that hungry the rest of the day. Your body gets used to it. You get accustomed to it. And man, what a terrible thing to happen to us spiritually to get used to being fed only once a week. And I'd, I'd try to do my best to prepare sermons and come up with material and study the Word of God, and then you just basically get the overflow of my study time here. That's what I call sermons. is just kind of the overflow for me. But man, it's not enough. And so how are you being nourished by God throughout your week? Uh, whether it's through Bible study, whether it's, uh, for me, one of the ways I'm nourished is I, I go outside. I just spend some time outside, whether it's sitting by a lake or taking a walk in uh, my community, whatever it is. Just being outside and engaging with God and in conversation, like I, that's one of the ways that I get nourished. Uh, if, you wanna, if you're a reader and you want to learn more about it and you didn't go through the Sacred Pathways with us, pick up that book. Pick up that book, Sacred Pathways, and read that and, and figure out exactly how God's wired you to connect with Him. We're all different in that capacity. We all connect with God in a, in a very unique way. It's the same God, but some of you connect really, really well through like peace and solitude. And some of you, you connect more through worship and engaging that way. And some of you, you connect in all these different ways through traditionalism or through nature. I, I, I've told you before, many times, I'm a nature person. If you haven't taken the time to watch that Louis Giglio video, man, I really encourage you to do that. Just YouTube it or Google it or whatever. Um, he's actually got a couple out. Uh, and I told you my nephew was with us this weekend. He's 14 and he's got a lot of questions. And so we've watched, uh, we watched his uh, How Great Is Our God and his indescribable video. I love space. I really love like looking at the immensity of space and the stars that we know of and our, you know, the Milky Way galaxy. I just love all of that stuff. I love the, how much it tells about the, uh, the size of our God and how huge His creation is, and then also to recognize how small we are in comparison to all of that, and yet He loves us, and that blows my mind. But man, I, that'll nourish your soul, 
even if you're not that kind of person and you don't, you know, you don't really get into it, watching that video and seeing the size of just what we know. And, you know he points out, we always talk about the known universe because we have no idea how big it is. As far as we know, it's infinite. We cannot tell how large it is. We just can guess. And to me, that blows my mind. And I'm nourished by that idea to just sit and think how big our God is. That's one of the ways I can be nourished. And I hope you'll figure that out. You'll know that intimately, how you connect with God. And you'll engage in those things throughout the week that you will, you can't go four or five hours, just like you probably don't want to go four or five hours without a meal. You can't go four or five hours without connecting with God in some capacity. And then you'll get to the point where you can't go uh, two hours, and then an hour, and then a half an hour. And you just get so used to engaging with God, it just becomes a way of life. That's what new life is all about, that we would engage with Him all the time. Verses 20 and 21. It says, You have died with Christ, and He has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why... Do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? I'm sorry, but every time I, I read this portion of Scripture, I, I come back to uh, the, the church that I first became a Christian in. It was a pretty legalistic church. And by pretty, I mean insanely legalistic. Uh, and I felt like everywhere I went, I was being told, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. And I was like, man, I... Just like I felt like at that WVU football game, I'm like, man, I, I just, I don't know all these rules. I keep getting myself into trouble, and that's not helping. And there were so many, I believe, Christians who loved Jesus, who used condemnation as a club to demand obedience, which did not work very well for me, just made me want to do it more despite them. That was my personality, um, and it's just like my son. I learned that Jackie and I were in a bit of a bind when we were driving one day, and he had one of those little leapfrog tablets or whatever. They're supposed to make, you know, supposed to be help with your intelligence or things like that. And he's in the back, and it's like, I don't know, like push the number four, and you just hear like that button, and he just cracked up. He thought it was so funny to do the wrong thing constantly. He wouldn't push the right button. He knew which the right button was. He just thought it was hilarious that it kept complaining that he was doing the wrong thing. I don't know where he got that from. It was from me. But uh, when I was there, it was just like, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, don't do this, don't do that. And I'm just, I'm a, I'm a logical, factual person. So legitimately at the beginning, I just wanted to know, okay, show me in the scriptures where it says that. I wasn't trying to be cheeky or anything like that. I just really wanted to know where that said that so that I didn't, you know, anger God. And as you can guess, there's not a lot of places you can go to point out certain things that are just a cultural uh, acceptance thing. Paul's saying we have been set free. Stop worrying about what church people say you should do and follow Jesus. That's the goal. Follow Jesus. Not gain acceptance in whatever group of people you're in by following all of their crazy rules and regulations. And Man, love them, engage them, but follow Jesus. Do not follow somebody in the pew next to you. Don't follow the pastor. Follow Jesus. 
Now, hopefully there are people in your life who emulate Jesus and they're willing to say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ, just like Paul does to, to some of his followers. He says, you know, hey, man, I'm on my way to Jesus, so follow me. But I know what Paul wasn't saying was, just follow me. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so you can learn a lot of things from people, and I, I, hope, I hope you do that. I hope that you are both engaged in discipleship by reaching forward and being discipled and also by discipling others uh, behind you and helping them along in their faith. But never just look at one person and think that is Jesus and just follow them and live to please them and live to make them happy. Live to make Jesus happy. Verse 22. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules are human ways of achieving self-righteousness very often. Uh, for some, that's how they feel good about themselves, is they make up rules, and then they check all the boxes, and they feel good about that because they've done all the rules. And that's, to me, no different than those people who used to take a piece of wood and carve a little idol out of it and then worship it. They made it. They worship it. They feel good about themselves. We make rules. We worship those rules. We feel good about ourselves. Might not be carved out as a piece of wood, but it's just as man-made and it's just as useless as an idol is. Often I've also seen that uh, the goal of these rules is to limit the freedom of others because too much freedom is a bad thing. And I just don't, I just don't agree with that. Uh, not, certainly not when you're speaking in a spiritual sense that grace somehow needs to be regulated by us when it was given so freely to us. Now, obviously, I have kids. I know that there are certainly places for rules in order to keep somebody, you know, too much freedom can be a bad thing. That's why we close our doors and we lock them um, and we have a baby gate over our stairs because too much freedom can be dangerous for children. Um, but once you've grown as a believer, especially, once you've gone out of that infancy stage as a believer, you should understand that the, the landscape is open. The, the, what the scriptures say that everything may be permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And you begin to learn how to do that, how to regulate the difference between permissible and beneficial as a believer. Sure, I could stand up here in shorts and a t-shirt and my hat on backwards and preach. Jesus would be okay with that. Most of you probably wouldn't be okay with that. So I don't do it. Permissible? Yes. Beneficial? No. And so we regulate ourselves, and we have to learn how to do that as believers. We have to learn how to regulate our behavior in a way that honors God, honors those around us, and benefits us spiritually as we grow in our walk with Jesus. Verse 23, these rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. For so long, many churchgoers patted themselves on the back and congratulated themselves because of their adherence to these man-made rules. All the while, the Holy Spirit was nowhere to be found in many congregations. And the church was diminishing at a steady rate. And it's, it's, it's an interesting conversation. And you might still feel this way, but I'm going to push on this thought a little bit for you is when people say like, oh, back in my day, Man, people, when they came to church, they were on time. They dressed the right way. They were respectful. And you name all these things that aren't in the Word of God but are important to you. But where was the Holy Spirit? Was He present? That, that, I don't care about all the other stuff. 
What was the Holy Spirit doing in that church? Was he alive? Was the Spirit of God rushing through that place like a fire? Because that's what's important. I don't care if everybody followed your rules. What I care about is the Holy Spirit. Was he alive in that place? Was he alive in the people? Was God showing up in your midst? Was, were things happening that weren't possible and, and, and to be able to be explained in any other way than that God was there? Did that happen? Because I'm telling you, that gets messy. <laughs> Whether people are showing up on time, dressing a certain way, whatever the regulations and rules might be, and it gets messy when God shows up. Things get uncomfortable. He does things that don't necessarily fit our box and we need to be okay with that. It doesn't mean we don't have rules. It doesn't mean that we don't expect a certain level of behavior from people. But it also means that we should focus more importantly on what the Spirit is doing and far less on our list of rules that we have for people. What's important is that the Holy Spirit moves, not that church looked a certain way. And, and I think we, we see the results of that um, because we might... Be, we might remember that in hindsight and say, oh, it was such a beautiful time and people, they showed up, they, they did these things, but where are they now? The church has been in an astronomical decline, especially in our country, in the last 50 years. And it, we've seen an exodus from the church like we've never seen before. So yeah, they might have been dressing the right way. They might have been showing up on time. But how many actually followed Jesus? Because we have seen the result of a checklist church life. And I think now we're beginning to see what happens when God gets a hold of just a few people. When the Spirit of God comes alive, and even a small group of people, they can change a whole town. They can change a whole area, a whole culture. Because the Holy Spirit isn't limited by the number of people. He can do whatever He wants to do. And so that's where our focus should be. And because back in the day it required such strong devotion, we thought it was such a great thing. We thought we were doing a good thing. And in some ways it probably was good. And there was good that came out of it. But what we need to acknowledge is it doesn't help in conquering a person's evil desire. Dressing the right way, using the right words, showing up on time, leaving on time, doing all the right things. It doesn't conquer someone's evil desires. They just redirect it to acceptable sins. And that's what happened. You had people who would come to church. They would play the part. They'd look the part. They'd speak the part. Then they'd go home and they were terrible husbands, terrible wives, terrible children. But in church, everything looked good. And that became the goal. And that should never be I hope that your family is just as messy here as it is at home. I really do. Because that's real life. That means we're engaging and we feel comfortable. And even though, you know, when a kid screams or cries in the middle of our sanctuary, some of us might get a little irritated. We might give the parent a dirty look. I hope we don't. But let them be just as messy here as they are at home. That we should give that freedom to our church members. Yeah, it's a little bit distracting sometimes when it happens, but I'd rather have the sounds of baby crying than no sounds because that means our church is dying. So I'll always welcome, and honestly, I don't even hear it most of the time, but I'm told by you that there was a kid screaming or something. It just doesn't affect me. I love that stuff. Rules aren't inherently a bad thing, and I don't want us to walk away from this morning hearing that. Well, rules are bad. Rules are terrible. 
all of us have, most of us, that, or all of us that have had kids, we had rules in our house, and they were for a reason. The problem is when we think these rules are what will produce righteousness and a desire for the things of God. And I think some parents have found how ineffective that is. They create all these rules. The kid is a straight arrow their whole life, and they go off to college, and you've heard the story. Wait, what happened? But they were such a good kid. No, they obeyed all the rules. And the parents, unfortunately, thought that if they obeyed all those rules, that it would automatically make them a righteous person who pursued holiness just because their behavior was modified to a certain degree for a certain period of time. The problem is when we think that behavior management equals holiness, and it doesn't. Someone can manage their behavior as long as they want. Look at every sociopath that was a mass murderer or something like that. They learned behavior management really, really well because no one expected them. Behavior modification does not equal holiness. Some of the holiest people I've met have had some of the messiest walks with Jesus. And it didn't look good, and people are amazed that they walk with Jesus now. But that's just the way it is. We have to be real with God. We can't try to create a facade. We just need to let that stuff out and and realize that, yeah, we might need rules, especially in a community, a a faith community like this. We're going to have rules. We're going to have regulations. We're going to require certain things of people that aren't found in the Word of God, and that's okay. But we cannot be confused to think that if someone obeys all the rules, that that makes them a good Christian. It does not. It makes them a good rule follower. It's one of my big pet peeves with uh, at times public school that, uh, that uh, teachers that think, well, if they obey all the rules, that means they're a good kid. No, well, they can still be a bad kid and obey all the rules. I, I know. I can't tell you how I know, but I know. Just because we check all the boxes and act the right way does not mean that we are on fire for Jesus. And we shouldn't use that litmus test to judge people by or to determine whether or not Someone has a, a strong faith in Jesus. But walk with them for a little bit. Get to know their story. Hear how God is moving in their life, how he's messing up their, their normal way of doing things, how they're acclimating to this new life in Christ and how God has taken them away from what they knew and all the things they used to have and how they're journeying with him. That's somebody who's walking with Jesus. And it will probably still look ugly at times. And they might still do some things that you don't like, But it was never the church's job to manage people's behavior. It was never our job when someone walked in and go, okay, well, you've been here for three weeks now, so now it's time. You've got to stop this. You've got to stop that. Don't go here. Don't go there. Do all this thing. That that was never our job. The Bible is clear that the Holy Spirit is the convictor of sin. Who are we to step into his spot? Now, if somebody asks me, hey, I'm really feeling like God is absolutely, let me take you to the Scriptures and show you why that's wrong. But when we run forward ahead of the Holy Spirit to cut off all these things that people are doing and try to be the Holy Spirit to them, you are not a good Holy Spirit, let me tell you. He's much better at it. He's had a lot of experience. Rules cannot make someone walk in holiness. But next week, we'll get more into a little bit of what does help us to conquer our evil desires and to have an eternal perspective as we get into chapter 3. So what? So what does all this mean? 
So what should this, what effect should any of this have on, on us? What helpful truths can we pull out of what Paul had to say to the Colossian church? Well, I think the main push of chapter 2 for Paul is Holy Spirit dependency. We must be completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. And in my experience, churches just are not good at it. Because we like to be in control. We like to try to control things as best we can from our end. And it's really, really hard to let go and give control over to God because it might mean that certain things get messed up. Messed up. They get messy. We lose certain things that we really love because God wants to go a different direction than we do. When we try to develop our own ideas of God and righteousness, we fall into something called gospel morality. And it's trying to get gospel results with moral teachings. And this, to me, is a pervasive problem in the churches. Is we, we preach, we teach these ideas of like, well, you should do this, and you shouldn't do that. And we base it off of a, a moral feeling of, well, you should whatever, uh, whatever the rule is, whatever the, the push for that behavior is. And we, we try to make people feel morally wrong for doing something or for not doing something. And that's gospel morality. What we should do, what we should want to do, is to bring people to Jesus constantly, frequently, as often as we can, and let the gospel take root in their hearts. And we should speak the gospel to them. And we should teach the gospel, trusting that it is effective in its own way. And it will do the work that we want. We want to see people walk in holiness. But gospel morality will not get us there. Making people feel compelled based on their moral basis to get gospel results will have far less effect than bringing someone to Jesus and letting his life bloom in their heart and watch how they will they'll be drawn closer and closer to him and behaviors will fall away. I've journeyed with enough people with Jesus that I've just determined, you know what, as much as I want to try to control this, I'm just going to preach the gospel time after time after time. And how many times they've come to me and said, man, I'm really feeling like I, I want to quit my job because the, you know, the conversations that I get pulled into at work and these things, like, I just, it, just, it doesn't feel good anymore. And it's like... I've known that for a year. I just didn't, it wasn't my place. And so, and then Jesus got them there. Look at that. In his timing and in his way, they make that decision between them and Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing. Like I said, it doesn't mean that we don't give people godly advice. What it means is we don't try to run ahead of the Holy Spirit and use moral basis to get gospel results. We cannot strive just for the appearance of righteousness. Like I said, I would love it if you came to church just as messy as you left home. Because then that's real life. And I want to be a real family. I want to have unity that's true and real. And I want people to feel comfortable coming in here when they are messy and when they don't have it all together and when they are going through a rough time. This is where I want people to be. In, not necessarily in this building, but with you, with God's family. This is who we should call when we're having a bad day or, or when things are tough and, and we need a touch of Jesus. First, we should go to God, but we should surround ourselves with His family. It's messier, 
but we need to give the gospel and the Holy Spirit time to do work in people's lives and let that be the agent of change for them. We need to trust God's process and learn and lean more into Him, not our rules, not our regulations, not our processes, that we need to seek more of Jesus. As the Proverbs say in Proverbs 3, 5 to 8, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you've taken us on this beautiful journey. You've created this new life in us that has started a journey that will never end for us. For all of eternity, we will be spending time with you, getting to know you, worshiping you, celebrating your love, your grace, the beautiful expressions of your love. Lord, I pray as we walk with you that we would steer clear of legalism, of of wanting to create rules, thinking that if we just modify our behavior enough, we'll be holy. Would you bring us to that place of realization of knowing that it's only in that humble place at the cross that we are going to achieve what we're looking for, and that's Holy Spirit dependency, that we would lean more into you, that we would depend more on you, Holy Spirit, and you would take us on that journey. You've already called us righteous. You've already called us holy. And you will take us where we need to go if we just look to you. Lord, I pray that we as a church family, that we would be comfortable being messy together and engaging each other in our messy places and allowing the Holy Spirit to do works in our lives and not feeling like we have to be everybody's savior and and run ahead and and, and, uh, try to convince people through moral teachings to do certain things. But Lord, would you give us the patience to see where you're at work and join you in your efforts in people's lives, in our community, everywhere that we go. Lord, I pray that you would also give us the heart to repent for ways that we have steered far away from what you, were, what you had Paul tell the Colossian church, Lord. Would we be honest with that? And we, would we walk in the freedom that we have in you, Jesus? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a good weekend, and I uh, pray that, like I said, you will reflect on Memorial Day today, tomorrow, and all year.